0: I'm ready to crack a beer. Should we do it so that we've got the uh, timing synchronized? Hang on. All right. Let's do it. Three, two, one. There we go. Cheers, fella. Cheers. Dr. McDonald. <laughs> I like the color of yours. That looks all right.
1: This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him doctor. I just call him dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guests the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. As the opening to this episode indicates, uh, this is a very fun interview that I had with Professor Matt McDonald of the University of Queensland. We chatted on a Friday evening Utah time, an early Saturday afternoon Brisbane time, where he is, and uh, opened up the conversation with a cracking of beers uh, world, uh, half a world away from one another. It was great to see Matt again. He's a good friend of mine. It was great to catch up with him. I've known of his work for almost 20 years now. <clears throat> I've known him, I guess, for about a decade. I emailed him after reading his international political sociology article on the politics of Australian memory. It's titled, Lest We Forget. It's a fantastic article uh, and it was one that I was so struck with that I just out of the blue not knowing him I just emailed him a congratulatory note uh, to tell him how much I appreciated the article and um, that started what has become a uh, growing friendship between Matt and I over the last decade and someone that I always enjoy chatting with. He always cheers me up um, and this is a time of year when as it's getting darker here in the United States as opposed to the warmth and light of Australia, it was uh, much needed. So it was sunny there in Brisbane, but it was also kind of a sunny, his sunny disposition that kind of was a nice much needed pick me up. So Matt talks about growing up in a small town in New South Wales. Uh, He talks about moving from New South Wales to um, Brisbane and where he learned how to play the piano, he learned how to play the guitar. He eventually attended UQ um, for his undergrad, his master's, and then eventually his Ph.D. Um, He lived with his parents throughout much of that period of time and commuted to the University of Queensland uh, for his classes, and so he talks a little bit about what that was like. Um, He had a brief career as a lounge guitar player, uh, or sort of a coffee shop and, and pub uh, guitar player playing covers, and he tried to move by that quickly, and I wouldn't let him, and so we spent a little bit of time on that. He talks about how and when he started to get interested in academia, the life-changing exchange that he had um, towards the end of his Ph.D. training uh, that took him to a in Wales, where he really started to get into IR theory and decided then and there that he was definitely in it for the long haul when it came to academia. So he talks about that period of time and who he was around and who he got to meet and interact with uh, in the British Academy uh, during that exchange at Aber. He discusses going on the market uh, while he was still trying to finish up his Ph.D. and um, teaching a a full-time gig. And his um, very long travel session um, that took him to his interview at Birmingham, which was ultimately a successful interview at the University of Birmingham in uh, England, he discusses the decision to take that position in Birmingham and ultimately move from Australia to the UK, um, and what that decision and discussion was like with his wife, Helen, and also what their first impressions were uh, when they got to Birmingham and England, where they would live for a number of years. He reflects on how enjoyable it was to have colleagues like Chris Browning, who's a mutual, very good friend uh, for both of us. His move from Birmingham to Warwick, where he spent some time having his two boys in Britain, Helen and and. Uh, Matt had their two uh, boys in Britain and how much he did enjoy uh, Britain and, and sort of the, the humor of the Brits, um, but ultimately how much he missed his family back in Australia, and so and including especially his brother. He talks a little bit about his uh, how close he is to his brother, which I definitely can relate to because I miss my brother quite a bit. Um, and so then he talks about moving back to Australia and getting a position where he is uh, still to this day, once again at UQ, we chat about his approach to writing, how he decompresses via exercise, music, camping, and craft beer. He talks about the infamous and widely ridiculed by Yelena Subodich, who is a former guest on the Hayseed Scholar podcast. That widely ridiculed evening that he and I had uh, out with Chris Browning. Chris Ages, Katarina Kinvall, and Jennifer Mitsen uh, Jelena Subotic has never let us live it down. Um, but it was an enjoyable evening in Prague in 2018. He and Chris and I were staying together at an Airbnb, and it was just a wonderful week uh, there in Prague at the 2018 EISA meeting. So we talk a little bit about that, and we kind of conclude um, signing off and wishing each other Uh, Well, And so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. McDonald. It goes about an hour and a half like we typically have for this podcast. And so I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed chatting with my friend, Professor Matt McDonald of the University of Queensland. So you you grew up in Australia, yes? Yeah, yeah. It's a really, I'm like,
0: you know, it's a really boring Story of luck and privilege. My transition to academia, but then actually most of the rest of it's pretty just in Australia, bouncing around, you know, big in in, the big city of Brisbane.
1: It it was. So you were were you born in Brisbane? No, no. I moved
0: here when to start at the end of my primary school. So I think I was about ten when I moved to Brisbane from. Um. Tamworth, which is in rural New South Wales. Um, so we were, dad was a school principal and was sort of bouncing around small schools in, around, in and around Tamworth. And then finally got a gig in Brisbane and they were thinking, well, it's about time to get the, you know, the kids are about to start. My older brother was going straight into high school. And so I think they were thinking through those in that sense. Actually, it makes sense to move to How, how old
1: were you when you moved? uh ten so what so do you remember small town life then uh,
0: oh you... yeah, 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 no, definitely, I loved it, I mean, I loved it actually, um well, especially at that age because we were absolutely mad about sport, my brother and I, and yeah, still are, but um so yeah we'd we'd play I just used to love on the weekends you'd play you'd play sport, but there was also if you had an afternoon you'd just be you'd just leave on your bicycle and go down the creek or go to a mate's place or, and then come back in the afternoon. It's sort of something that's lost, I think, if you live in a big city. Um, but, yeah, no, so I definitely remember it because you grew up in a small town as well, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, it was uh, – well, it was kind of medium size for the state that I was in but the state that I was in Iowa was really small. Um, mm. And so – and the same kind of thing. I mean, we, had, we were at least – generationally back then you know they called us latchkey kids because the (laughs) parents just kind of let you go off and explore and (laughs) um so we had a creek that we'd go to we'd go play baseball games at a lot we play football games at a lot and not come back until the until the evening and um and that kind of stuff but uh yeah and so your so your dad was a school teacher uh both parents so, both parents, so the same with me right so i grew school. Up. oh yeah, yeah that's right i think so we what,
0: can talk about that
1: yeah what what level was your like what level of grade school was your parents or did your parents teach teach at um, so my dad was a school principal he didn't do much teaching he didn't
0: actually like i think being in the classroom he liked to be doing the administrative uh, being the being the big man on campus so he was the school principal of primary schools, and then after a while, they sort of um, he became part of the area supervisors, like you know, um, what's his name in uh, the Simpsons, Skinner's boss. Anyway, he was a bit, he was sort of like that. So he was a regional sort of supervisor, and then Mum was a an English teacher, predominantly at um, high school. At a at a, both in the Catholic education system because that's another thing. Of course, you and I share yeah, the Catholic.
1: Yeah, but you were actually an altar boy,
0: right? I was. Yeah, I was. Played the organ at church a bit later and then, uh, yep, altar boy. Until so, I went, actually, this whole thing's a fast, I don't know,
1: <laughs> and gave it all away. But, uh, yeah. Well, did you, um, so was it a Catholic school that you went to in the small town then that you were from? Or?
0: Yeah, well, dad was the school principal of the primary school I went to, which I would not recommend. So all of my entire primary school years, so that's basically until the start of high school. My school principal was always my father the whole uh, the whole way through. And then, um, yeah, I went to a I went to a Catholic uh, all boys high school, and my brother was there. And it was a feeder school from my dad's primary school, so like um, it was pretty obvious that we go there. But I was not doing particular. I didn't. Yeah, no, it didn't work for me because they were really quite strict disciplinarians and part of the reason I'm attracted to this profession is that I fucking hate it when anyone's telling me what to do. So I changed to a big public school, um, state high, and uh, they were just like their view was, well, if you if you want to do well, we can, we can help you out. If you don't want to do well, then that's your funeral. And I was like, fine. I'll do well then. <laughs> so that was that was what I needed that that sort of thing. But um, and they were also really math science focused, trying to get everyone to do maths and sciences. And it was pretty clear early on that I had no capacity in that direction at all.
1: Um, but yeah. And how much older is your brother and you?
0: Two years older. Yeah. So we were we really close, and it's one of those things where we have. So yeah, he was around he. Stayed over last night. We were. He came to the pub with me and my neighbour. But um, played a lot of sport together, really good sort of combination and been on holidays together. So I, last year when I went to Japan for a workshop, that was the last time we went overseas, I said to him, look, is there any chance? Because his kids are, he's older but he's got kids who are like one and three. I said, is there any chance you could come in the we could have a few days hanging out in Tokyo? And I think he had to put in some hard yards to try to justify, it, but he did, and we had a we had a great time. So but yeah, we um really good friends. And then I've got a younger sister who's three years younger. Um they're both uh Commonwealth public servants. My my brother and my my sister's really quite senior. Um so yeah, mum, dad both teachers, my siblings both public servants and
1: on the outlier <laughs> well what but your parents obviously had college educations right as a teacher and and director or principal. yeah no sort of so it's it's complicated because
0: they had um, back when they started they had a diploma of teaching was what it was which wasn't actually an undergrad uh, a degree and it was at a teacher training college rather that was affiliated to a university rather than um a university itself. So they subsequently both of them went back and did um university degrees. Mum did a masters in English literature and dad did a masters in sort of leadership and things like that. But uh at the time neither of them actually trained to be teachers through a bachelor degree. And my dad was one of those first in family to actually go to university and that was only because he had this spectacular, so he worked on a farm in New South Wales. His siblings were all sort of, they worked helped out on the farm and then dad had, when he was about 15, had this spectacular bike accident where someone hit him in a car and he had to spend six months basically in hospital uh, reconstructing his knee, couldn't really walk. Walk, And at that point all the the teachers were just coming and giving him stuff and he was like, well, I've got bugger all else to do. And then they were sort of saying, oh, he's quite good at this. Does he want to go on and finish high school? Because even that was seen as like a big thing in his family. That would put him apart from his older siblings. So they were like, oh, well, maybe because he's useless around the bloody farm anyway. (laughs) He's at his knees over so yes, Mum. Um, so he—that was why he ended up enrolling in this diploma of teaching. And the good thing about this program was that they basically said, "Look, we'll pay for it for the diploma, but then you have to go to wherever the hell we decide to send you." Um, so they, Mum and Dad met in a town in Western New South Wales called Walgett, which is. Pretty, it's not a lifestyle move. You wouldn't go there to thinking, you know where, you know where we should move to. Well, but they happen to meet there, and it's such an intense experience being there. A very significant indigenous population there, so I think they, as young teachers coming together, and they spend a bit of time together, and that's sort of how they ended up um, there. But I think we often think, God, if it wasn't for Dad's bike accident, we would, he wouldn't have finished high school, would never have met Mum, you know. That's, that's sort of all these arbitrary moments. Whereas by the time I got, by the time me and my siblings got to the end of high school, it was just assumed we'd all go to university. Whereas none of my cousins, yep. none of my first cousins went to university at all. Um, and it's interesting, they, the whole culture started to change about validating the idea of going to university such that most of their kids are now going to uni, but it's sort of there about two generations after
1: us and was it i mean this is but obviously it was a family environment where because you assumed you were going to college did you, did you all talk about things like politics or like other stuff like as kids with with your parents or um did that ever pop up or we did a little bit my dad mod- modeled himself off uh
0: Bob Hawke, a former Australian uh, Prime Minister who, of course, was famous for during his years at Oxford actually um, getting in the Guinness Book of Records for sculling a yard glass of beer um, faster than anyone had managed to do it before and then would go on to become Prime Minister of Australia. You know, I'm not saying that's cause and effect, but draw your own conclusions. So (laughs) Dad kind of had this hair, so he sort of moulded himself of of Hawke and he loved loved Bob Hawke. So they were always pretty... It was pretty clear they were Labor-oriented, but we didn't tend to talk too much about it, didn't spend a lot of time talking about international politics at all. Um, And then when I enrolled in I was good at humanities and interested in social justice stuff. Some of the good, you know, the good stuff that comes through the, as you know, through the the Catholic Church, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, some of those social justice things that that were on my radar... Um, but then, when I by the time I got to university, I, I chose to. I was doing a double major at the start. My arts degree was a double major in English, just because English was my best subject at, at school. And it wasn't for until second year that I think I started to go actually the I'm enjoying the politics courses more.
1: So, you're how did you decide uh, UQ then for um, for your college? Was it just? sort of something that – had your brother already gone on to UQ or – No. So Ant had gone to Griffith,
0: which was actually a little bit closer um, than UQ. But um, the norm in Australia really is that you you basically just go – especially for undergraduate, you go to your local – if you live in a big city, you'll just go to one of those city universities and you'll usually pick which one's best aligned to your – you know, to to what you're studying. So in my case, an arts degree it was a bit of a no-brainer. You know, the the group of eight universities, the big sort of the Australian equivalent of the Ivy League, they tend to be the universities that are stronger when it comes to arts humanities. So um, for me, it was it was pretty obvious that I'd go to uh, that I'd go to UQ um, as an as an undergraduate. I was really jealous when I was in the UK really jealous of their system where the norm was basically of course you wouldn't stay at home you'd go and live in a halls of residence in another city I was thinking, actually that would be good because I didn't move out I didn't move out of home until I started my PhD um so in that so you were like still 20, living at home
1: at, in college at UQ
0: yes yes I was <laughs> and it was a massive uh it got easier, um, but it was a massive pain because it was actually a really annoying commute from my place. Because we didn't technically live in Brisbane, we lived in uh, the Redlands, which is the, the next sort of shire council area over. But it was about thirty kilometres from Brisbane City. It's over on the Bay side. Um, I was desperate to get out of the Redlands by the time I lived, but there's some nice there's some nice parts, but. <laughs> But you had to to get to uni you either I either had to borrow Dad's car, which I tried to do as often as I could because I didn't own a car at that stage <clears throat> but if you did it by public transport, you had to catch a train that took about forty five fifty minutes to get to um this train station near the university, but crucially on the wrong side of the river so You'd then have to walk about 15 minutes to the river. And then there was just this little crappy ferry that used to go back and forth and you had to pay a dollar to to get on the thing. But invariably you'd get down there and it'd just be chugging away and you knew it didn't take an age to come back to you. So it was not uncommon that it took me like an hour and 40 minutes to go to to university. So I didn't what, actually...
1: What was your social experience then like what did you have a college social experience were you still able to to do that living with your parents or i mean it's a that's a really
0: good question i actually think my experience at university i was like was pretty ordinary in my um undergraduate degree and that was in large part because i realized uh that i didn't actually have to physically be there that often on even when I did have classes I was like oh well, bugger this I don't really need to go to all the lectures I mean this was even before they were recorded I still backed myself to be able to get over the line when it came to assessments and wasn't really pushing myself that hard to do that well so I would on most weeks it'd be unusual if I was on campus more than a couple of days and then it was fairly transactional I was like right I've got a lot of things to do in the couple of days I'm here books to get out to take home and um, you know, classes to to attend the ones where they really insisted you actually turn up. <laughs> um, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best experience at all. And I think if yeah, if I was doing it again, there'd be a lot that'd be different in my undergrad. I really just drifted through the first couple of years of undergrad with a terrible GPA that was basically just consistently passing but never pushing, never even close to getting distinctions or high distinctions in my first couple of couple of years.
1: Um, when did the spark hit? Then oh, it was bit, when did the spark of brilliance a, yeah. get ignited? Oh, yeah. in Matt McDonald yeah, in yeah. college. I'm still
0: I'm still holding hope holding out hope <laughs> that that's gonna that's gonna come. Um, no, I think so. In about uh, in about third year, this is so uninspired. In about the start of third year, I think I had this moment where I was like wow, I've got one more year and I don't really know what I'm going to do and there's a lot of other people who are finishing an arts degree and I'm going to be competing with them for, you know, whatever job. But I still hadn't worked out what the hell I was going to do. So I started to try a bit harder in my courses and I was enjoying the government courses, the politics courses and international relations courses a lot more, but I still wasn't really that desperate to to do well, really until third year and then it was all about... I'm going to try to bump my GPA up a little bit so it doesn't look terrible when I'm applying for jobs, but even then it was only towards the end of third year where I found out about this The school (laughs) had just initiated this master's degree um, in international relations and they sort of said, oh, you know, you could could potentially enrol in that because in Australia the more common pathway to go from, undergraduate to PhD is through uh, an honours year, a separate honours year, and it's really, you know, research preparation. There's a lot of stuff on research methods. It's really focused on the development of a dissertation, so it's an ideal foundation really then to go on and do a PhD, but I, it hadn't been on my radar at all. and My GPA wasn't good enough for me to be able to get into it anyway. So they accepted me into the master's program, which was fine, except that all the classes were... Um, were at night because they were sort of pitching it to people who were working full-time and do you want another degree so you can shift from whichever Queensland government department you work in to, you know, one of the big Canberra-based ones or Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade or something like that. The, the only good thing about that being classes being at night was that I had dad more ready access to my dad's car, which I was still borrowing and using. So, um, so yeah, it was only at the end of 30 that I started to try a bit harder and only when I found out about this master's program and I thought oh, I'll throw myself into that and I should actually try to do quite well um in that master's program because I knew this was definitely going to be you know GPA on that would people would forget what my GPA was in my undergraduate if I do well enough in the master's so I tried I tried pretty hard um in that one
1: were, were you interested in, um, like, what, what kinds of IR work were you reading, like, later on in undergrad and then into your master's? Were, I mean, were, were you taken with, with IR at that point or was it more just generally politics classes, government classes? I was I was interested in it, but again, <laughs> I'm such a late, uh, I was such a late
0: sort of convertee, I think, to the academic space that I, I couldn't, confidently tell you about any of the of the IR research I was actually doing at the time at um, undergrad, a little bit more at Masters as I started to get into debates about environment and security. That was the topic for my Masters, my much shorter Masters diff- dissertation. So I was reading, just started to touch on a few of the debates about security and find out that, you know, there's people out there who think it's not just about war, that it's about emancipation or it's, you know, all these other things. So there was a little bit of that and I remember Ken Booth early on sort of thinking, Oh yeah, this this guy, I like this. It was simple and it did seem as well to accord with that sort of Catholic social justice thing a little bit like his vision of emancipation of the most vulnerable. I was like, Yeah, okay, I can I can get with that. That's a that's a project. But um but yeah, I wasn't deep I was not at all deep into IR literature. Even through master's program really um yeah who
1: who were the professors that were at least assigning you these different works were they at least yeah. uh, letting you read widely and yeah so um i had uh
0: Marian Hanson hansen was i think one of the first courses i took at uq that i really thought yes this is a great one was one of hers and she, she's now my office name she's in the office next to me um and is a good friend. Um, Bill Tao was another one. He did sort of US strategic uh stuff. <laughs> he was a classic uh realist who was um actually just genuinely and personally uh paranoid about all sorts of things, used to say, you know, he was he was the one who introduced me to the phrase, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And I've I've used that <laughs> almost every day, I think. I remember him saying that and just thinking Wow, what a time to be alive. You're my you're my <laughs> you're my academic supervisor. So um so Bill was there. And then there were another couple of people who Joanne Wright who did IR theory, she was very good. Um she is actually now the uh, one of the very senior people in the university, having left and come back and is now overseeing teaching across the university. Um but yeah, the a handful of other people were kind of area specialists, like we had people who did sort of Russian-Soviet stuff for, um Indonesian politics was another one and then um, Peter Chalk who did sort of, uh, he ended up working for the RAND Corporation. That sort of was the sort of work he did. So... So yeah, they, they were very open. I think that was always a good thing. There's there's there was always openness about you know what you what you said. But I probably wasn't exposed to uh, the full range of debates of what was happening in IR um, really in the undergrad and and masters. I think in comparison to what we do now for students, because it's such a big department now. It's and yeah,
1: were there um. Were there any events in international relations like in like that included Australia or or anything that was happening politically that was particularly formative for you around this time or a little bit earlier? I mean, I know Australia uh, was in uh, the uh, desert storm. Um, and then and then I'm, I'm even wondering, like, did it pop up with your dad's generation regarding uh, Australian participation in Vietnam? Like oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. That was a
0: really big thing for for Dad, whose knee injury actually prevented him from ever being in the under the gun, so to speak, in terms of conscription. Because of course we had conscription in Australia to uh, to send people to, to the Vietnam. War. But um, so that was a big, obviously a really big issue for his generation. Mine I sort of remember I really remember the Tiananmen Square was probably the first event that I was really um aware of. And then the fall of Berlin Wall. Um and then yeah, golf the Golf War was the big one where I was sort of really actually paying sort of more active um attention to that one. But um but yes, and then of course I was doing my PhD when um uh September eleventh happened. I think I was a third I would have been 3rd year PhD when that when that happened so that then was was pretty significant not just in terms of this the major international event but um, in terms of the research that I ended up doing I ended up actually writing some stuff on responses to terrorism because it would seem too important to sort of ignore I guess
1: well and then um, what was it that got you sort of t- it sounds like when you were in your master's program, you weren't necessarily going to use that as the gateway into a Ph.D., that the idea was you're going to go into the master's, get a better grade point average, and then that would be what employers would notice um, and, and, uh, and then go from there. So when, when did you decide that you wanted to make the jump for, for Ph.D.? So,
0: so listeners should strap themselves in for what is an incredibly <laughs> inspiring story about someone choosing this vocation that is academia. Basically, I did the master's course, thinking I'm if I get a solid GPA, I'll apply for the graduate positions in um, departments like Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Defence. You know, that, that was the sort of trajectory I felt like I was on um, that I was going to going to. Go down that road, but um, the degree itself was eighteen months, and I managed somehow to miss the de- the deadline on one particular year. The last year I was finishing the masters, I managed to miss the deadline altogether for these graduate positions, and so then had to. I was staring down the barrel of I've got six months where I'm not doing anything. And then after that I'll be able to apply again, but it's going to be another um, at least six months before they actually, before I would be able to move to Canberra and take up one of these positions. So I finished the master's program still think, at the time having thought this is going to help me get a job in the public service. Then um, I <laughs> was applying for jobs in the Queensland public service while I was um, playing guitar at coffee shops and uh, doing after-school care Um at different schools. I was applying for jobs in departments like the Department of Primary Industries in Queensland where you, <laughs> it was just, which would have been a disaster for me, um, I think. But the, the big thing in terms of the PhD as a pathway was that my I had met uh, Helen, my wife, um, I'd, we'd gotten together in the third year of my arts degree she had her parents had both been to, um, had both not only been to UQ and university, but her mum was a had won the university medal, her dad had a PhD in physics. Mum, uh, they were sort of pushing Helen to say, well, you should definitely do honors at the end of your um undergrad, and she did much better than me, so she was able to uh, get into her honors program. And um, we had met because she was doing a lot of history courses with some politics courses and I was the I was the inversion. I was doing more politics courses, but then some history courses as well. So we managed to we came across each other and had actually recognized each other from high school. So we went to the same high school, which is sort of I don't know whether it's sweet or sad. But in the end, she got into this honours year. So she started the honours year in my last semester of Masters and then I finished and she kept going, and as she was doing, she did uh, she did really well in honours. And she had her supervisor of the honours project saying, "Look, you really should think about doing a PhD in history, in Australian history, and you know there are scholarships available if you get if you do well in honours. You're a very good chance of getting this PhD scholarship." And so she was talking to me about this while I'm applying for jobs <laughs> in the Department of Primary Industries. And as I think almost like an afterthought, I remember thinking, oh, well, I've got, there's not really much else that I want to do. And I do find the politics stuff interesting. Maybe I can pitch some variant of my master's dissertation. I could pitch that to Marianne Hansen as, you know, would you be willing to supervise if I got a, a PhD scholarship? Bearing in mind, so, again, this is just my local university, the only one I knew. Henson, I pitched this project on environment and security that Marion Hanson had no research background in. Um, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying this wasn't her central to her research, which is it was about nuclear disarmament and she was teaching European politics. But I put in this application based on my master's, I put in this application for a PhD scholarship on this project, just thinking, well, worst case scenario, At the end of this thing, I knew enough about a PhD to to know that you could call yourself a doctor at the end, and that really appealed to me. I was like, yes, that's uh, because the medicine stuff freaked me out a little bit, and this is a a loophole, (laughs) a doctor title. So there was a bit of that. But then also the scholarship amount. It's a PhD scholarship that students now would complain about, but for me, having only ever had sort of been part of the gig economy and really as a casual, it looks like a lot of money and regular income and with opportunities for tutoring and stuff. So I applied and then was stunned that I managed to get this um, scholarship to do my to do my PhD. So my wife and I started on our PhDs, her in history. Me and government on exactly the same day. We moved out to this little flat in West End, the first time I'd lived out of um, home. And then um, at the same time, about a month before we before we started, and uh, we ended up graduating at the same time as well. With her, she writing, her PhD was on Australian Indig- oh elements of the stolen generation in Australia. It's a fabulous PhD thesis, I think probably better than mine, to be honest. But um, she decided she wanted to be a social worker so at the at the end she then did another degree i suspect just more degrees than me but um she's a jealous petty woman like that but she decided social works where i want to go so she then um basically enrolled in this uh, shorter um program in social work and is now yes uh, a social worker so that was my beautiful inspiring journey to a phd and uh, the one thing with the Hayseed scholar podcast that I've listened to I've listened to so many people who've made such intelligent informed really due diligence is a real feature of why people chose the schools that they did and what research they were reading and I was like I literally fell into doing a PhD at UQ and even when I started no sense I had no sense that I would end up being an academic that
1: was never on my radar at the at the start Well what so what well, for OK, so I actually have two questions because um, <laughs> we just we quickly passed over what I think for many of us, including myself, is just as important, which was you were a guitar player playing in coffee shops. So like, what, what was that like? Did you earn money? Was it just one of these uh, vanity things where you just wanted everybody to be excited that you were a guitar player or, like, or was it a little bit of a combination <laughs> of both? Like, like what was that, that like? And, and did you ever make the jump to playing in pubs or was it just coffee shops? was it just coffee shop um no, there were bars bars and
0: uh bars and um i think a beer garden featured at some point that's, a, that's so it's Did
1: you go by Matt McDonald or did you have like a stage name <laughs> you'd like that wouldn't you you'd like that <laughs> um, no sorry sorry i didn't i didn't
0: <laughs> I don't think I was important enough at any of these venues for them to be advertising. You know what? Tonight's a special night because we got this guy who's got an acoustic guitar and he seems to have some sort of amp set up or something. But anyway, he's going to play, he's going to play some U2 covers and he's going to play some, uh, Hunters and Collectors and Midnight Oil and all these other Australian songs. So I, it, it was an, it was, it was a genuine sort of source of income for me for a while, but, um, but it was sort of, I would do, I would do that. And then also, um, yes, after school care was the other sort of regular gig, but of course that was only three hours at a time. So it wasn't paying, wasn't paying that much, but, um, but yeah.
1: Did, did, did you ever like just dream about maybe hitting it big as a musician or or not? Uh, I thought I didn't think about it. I did. I, I think, um,
0: I never really got into writing any of my own stuff and I would never, you know, I was always too antisocial to actually join a, get organised enough to join a band. So I'd play with people but ne- never in a band. So I think it was one of those things that you sort of think, oh, well, maybe. But then I lacked, probably like the PhD <laughs> trajectory generally, I just lacked the initiative. And uh, you know the firm streak of laziness that just meant oh, I'll just play at coffee shops, and I'll sing someone else's songs. That I don't need, no one needs me bringing my tunes into the world. <laughs>
1: well, but um, in all honesty, you you do play. So I know you play the guitar, but you also know uh, how to play the piano. Are there other instruments you you play? Well, um, the uh,
0: I, I play a little bit of ukulele, but only because it's 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 very easy to transition to that and sometimes when you're camping you can't carry the the guitar's a bit heavier and takes up a bit more space i really wanted to come up with an incredibly obscure instrument there i tried to learn glockenspiel for a while just so i could play that part in um uh no surprises the radiohead so much you know one of my from the best album of all time okay computer um but no that was that was about it it was a product of so my mum um said look you've got to do piano we want you to learn piano my brother managed to get out of it on the basis that he was absolutely so naturally woeful at piano that the piano teacher said I can't keep in good conscience taking money from you to my parents whereas with me they're like oh yeah you know she wasn't she wasn't quite at that point of saying you know it's unconscionable for me to accept any salary but I stuck with it um, for for a while and was doing all the formal grades and stuff with piano, but at a particular point in time, I sort of real. I had this awful teacher in Brisbane who was just obsessed with results, and she was a, she was the sort of quintessential, the archetypal kind of dragon of a teacher. And I was we were all terrified of her, and she sort of there was some low level assault going on if you really mucked up, or she thought you hadn't done your practice, and. I got to the point where I negotiated with mum and dad. Right when I do grade, I think it was grade six. I completed of the of piano sort of the official piano levels, and uh, I said after this, I'm, I'm, I don't have to do anymore. And they were like, "Yes, okay." So I finished that and just was like, "I hate the piano. I really don't want anything to do with it." But so picked up a guitar, and we had this cool sort of guitar teacher at Brisbane State High School and at lunch he'd meet us and sort of go, okay, here here it goes. And I remember thinking all I wanted to do at the time because I was a massive, at the time I just loved U2 and all I wanted to do was be able to play U2 songs. And, of course, to get to the point on the guitar where you can play chords to U2 songs if you understand how music works already, which I did, that's about a week really (laughs) they're all just three chords it's not sophisticated I mean so that was that was good but I and only subsequently got back into playing the playing the piano when I realized actually I I was okay at this instrument and I could play the sort of I could play the music that I wanted to play I could play blues on the piano it doesn't have to be the crap that my awful music teacher was making us uh, was making us play so um so yeah got it got into it and it's still a massive source of Relaxation and I love it. I get together sometimes with others. Seb Kemp's got a beautiful singing voice. He and I get together and uh, try to do harmonies of um, songs and try to keep the volume down so no one complains. But uh, yeah,
1: nice. Um, okay, and then so my, my the other question then that was related to the PhD was. <laughs> What did you think you were going to do if you didn't know for sure that you were going to become an academic once you got into the PhD? No. <laughs> because it sounds like, okay, yeah. it sounds like you, you weren't even a hundred percent sure that you were going to do that, but you got into it anyway. So what were. That's right. I, or was it just one of those things that it made sense to do it because Helen was doing it? And I think that there was a little well bit, there, there was a little try. bit of
0: that. It looks interesting and sounds interesting. You're doing a research project for a while. Um, and then, I remember talking to someone at some point who said, Well, you know, of course, actually if you are thinking of public services is just, you know, that they would love this level of qualifications even better, obviously, the more you have it the better. So I was thinking, Oh, well, you know, that and being able to call myself doctor and having what to me seemed like a decent income because they weren't uh, you know, advertising my um Wednesday evening acoustic sessions at the local bar on massive billboards as you come into the city, I just thought, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll treat this. And I really did start thinking I'm going to treat this as an end in itself. I'm just going to do a PhD and have the experience of, of doing a PhD. And what changed? So this was where actually it starts to map on to some of the um, other people we've heard from, including Kean O'Driscoll who was, of course, the first speaker in the, the podcast. What really changed for me was um, Marion Henson had done her PhD at Oxford, um, at Magdalen College in Oxford, and one of her very good friends from those years was um, Tim Dunn. And she said to Tim, you should come out to We've Got This Exchange, come out, take a sabbatical, and, of course, at Bruce with back then and this really generous sabbatical program, come out and spend the semester with us. And so he did. And... He, so there were two big things there. One, he knew and would talk about, he was this really at the time, actually he's still, he's technically my boss, so I'd say he still is really cool. Uh, (laughs) At the time we were just like, wow, he's this young sort of academic who's in the midst of, you know, all these big debates in IR. And Aberystwyth at the time, as you, as you know, as Keaton and others have, have mentioned, was like this nerve centre of critical IR. It was where all these amazing people were. And so he would come and he'd be talking about the, at the time, it was the third, you know, the third grade debate and all these things in ways that we, it was sort of really bringing it to life. So that was, that was great and that was, um, yeah, really you have this window into, wow, what would it be like to be living and breathing IR, know in a community like that but then he decided what he would do would be to establish a he and Marianne together establish this exchange thing for PhD students between Aberystwyth and UQ and basically said if there's a enrolled student at UQ where it makes sense for them to go and we can allocate them a shadow supervisor in Aberystwyth and they should do it and vice versa um Helen had to do because her her thesis was comparing motives for child removal in Indigenous Australia to people in orphanages from the UK who were um, taken who were taken to other countries like Canada and also Australia. So she had to do as part of her work. She had to do this archival research in London and again in um, Liverpool. And so we started saying, actually, maybe it would make sense if while you're doing that, I'm based in Aberystwyth. So I went across to ABBA and was thinking, wow, you know, Ken Booth there, and Steve Smith, and Mike Williams, and uh, you know, Andrew Linklater was just joining the department. Richard wynne Jones, I was reading uh, all of his uh, stuff at the same time, and it was really. And, and Wheeler was there too, right? That, that's right. Nick, Nick Wheeler was there. Colin White yeah. was there. Jenny mothers was there. It was just this absolute superstar, star-studded department. But especially in the space that I was that I was working, um, so th- I had three months there. So it's a much shorter period than uh, you know those who talk about the formative years of PhD at, at Aberystwyth, like and would acknowledge. But very similar in the sense that you. You're in the midst of this environment with all these great people around who are talking IR in really sophisticated terms. And then, you know, because there's bugger all else to do in our with, you're going out with other PhD students, sometimes other staff, to uh, events and then to the pub. And you just carry on these conversations at the pub about, you know, at the time, I think it was all about, uh, had had Alex Wentz sold out with social theory of international relations that he joined the politics Because this and, would have been uh, like what, uh, 2001, 2002,
1: 2003, right around there? 2000. I think it was 2000. Oh, 2000. 30, so, okay. Yeah, so so when Tim Dunn came out, um, just to, to back up a step, when he came out, what year was that, that he came out to UQ when you first got to UQ? I, think it was 99 so i think it was right. my first year of so the, so his invention international society book on the, the sort of the history of the english school had just probably come out right just come there. out
0: that's right i think he just finished it he was working on the human rights book with ken booth the editor that was an edited collection that he was yep. working on or had just finished as well so um, and he was doing yeah, stuff on I,
1: solidarism and pluralism with Nick Wheeler and and yes. All, and all Tim, I
0: think for ease of organization, Tim had basically said, Look, I don't wanna you're the first one who's taking up this exchange thing. I'm not gonna ask any of my colleagues to necessarily you can definitely chat to them and I met and chatted with, you know, Steve Smith and his office and Mike Williams at the pub and um, all these other all these other people. I even one great experience, really amazing experience was um, Andrew Linklater had just arrived and so didn't have a big uh, PhD cohort that he was supervising at the time. and I spent a lot of time just chatting with him. He'd obviously had this background. he'd spent some time in Australia. but uh, he said, oh look if you want I'm teaching this global citizenship course it's a master's course um we haven't got many enrollments you could order you could come along if you want to so i enrolled in the i not enrolled because i just was turning up um but i I had this experience of him basically teaching transformation of political community but none of the other students were particularly engaged there was only about eight of us and i remember thinking this is basically just him and i having a conversation about this amazing but which is still you know one of my favorite ir books um and I've I've used it in my next book, the, that sort of split that he makes between the sociological and the praxeological and the normative is still is something that I'd I'd use now. So I had this amazing experience of talking through this this amazing book with, with someone. And of course, the PhD cohort, when I think of who was there, who I knew, even just people in my office, it's basically that they were all people who subsequently got academic jobs and a, you know, senior contributors to research and that was what Aberystwyth did it really sort of built that whole cohort you were everyone who went through was in the end just so well placed to then be competitive on the academic job market so i had this amazing time in aberystwyth i was there for about 3 months until the end of that year so it was october november december i i don't know that i saw the sun in that period but <laughs> it was an incredible incredible experience and I I came back from that experience thinking two things one I now know that I actually want to be an academic this is what I want to do like this is I'd gotten just this flash of how much passion you could have about this this subject area and I'd really loved the in-person debates I've had with people about all these big issues and I uh, just loved it but also Courtesy of about had a sense I think of what I might need to do to actually make it happen. You know, so I had you know, and Tim was great like that because for him it was as much about right should do. This is how you should think about conferences and publishing and those types of things. And he was he was great. Really has still, yeah, has been a really important mentor for me. So that was that was excellent. And I came back at the end of my second year of PhD going right. Now I know. It. Now I want to be an academic. Did you start attending conferences then? Was that well? I had been to one or two before, um, but did, uh, did you go to any when you were in the UK at all? Yes, or... I went. To, I went to the Beazer conference in Bradford. Which is just a jewel of a city. No, it was I feel <laughs> back. <laughs> so it was
1: a terrible it was a terrible time of year to say any city but I remember Bradford with Well just I mean, and just to clarify drizzled. for listeners, like our like the younger generation of listeners, like Bisa up until probably two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand or maybe the end of the two thousands was always Around Christmas time, right? It was always in that's the right. Winter.
0: That's so, right. <laughs> and like an idiot, I was actually on. I take some responsibility for the fact that I was on the BESA executive, the British International Studies Association executive. When I was at subsequently then at the University of Birmingham, I was teaching there, was elected onto the executive and was on the executive when we made when the decision was made to transition the conference from. That time around Christmas to the middle of the year. And I remember sort of saying, Oh, look, if you're from other countries, it's really hard to attend BISA. For me, it was the conference I was more interested in going to than any other. But it took me years to work out that actually, you know, at the time, to- one of the wonderful things, absolutely wonderful things about BISA was that it was basically just a, a Christmas party for academics. It really was. I mean, it was this amazing in those years. You'd really just—it was basically right at the end of that teaching term. You'd then all shovel off to, you know, whether it's Bradford or Southampton or Cork or um, wherever, um, and you'd you'd basically just meet up with meet up with it. You would present your work, obviously, but a large part of it was meeting up with friends and having a few pints and you know, ushering in the end of end of a year. And so, I think that's probably something that might have been lost with a transition to, uh, another time.
1: So, um, when you got back to, so when you got back to Australia, the, the idea was, did, did you feel like you needed to, because your, your first, um, well, the first publication of yours that I had read, uh, it, when I was in graduate school was your global society article, human security and the construction of security. And, um, For me, it was, uh, I think I read it in, um, yeah, when I was ABD. Yeah, that was published in 2002, but I think I read it in 2003. And so, um, like, because that's when I had my sort of security can be thought to be open, then, you know, you don't have to only think about security in the American sense of, you know, just one conception of national security, very, very narrowly understood big debate between neoclassical realists and the neo realists, And that's about it. Um, maybe with the neoliberal institutionalists. but, um, when you published that one, was that how, what was the story behind that, uh, article because that that was that was your second publication
0: right yeah so i'd written a review essay this was on tim's advice a review essay of a few books in, in that were touching on environment and security and then um had another piece that was sort of a basically a, a, an editorial about australia's uh, absolutely appalling approach to asylum seekers which really is just applicable from the point i wrote it to the present.
1: To, um <laughs> yeah, including to, here. That's well. right.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But um that piece was so uh my now good friend and colleague Roland uh Bleicher, had organized a conference rethinking humanitarianism and I ended up putting that in as an abstract as a suggested paper, I think in part because I had I'd started my PhD thinking right I'm going to use human security as a framework and of course it worked out that it actually doesn't really function as a framework which is a large part of what that piece piece is about and um so I then uh prepared this piece for global uh for this conference but then submitted it as well to um Global society. But it's one of those ones where I'd done all this work on human security but knew it wasn't going to feature in the end in my PhD. So I sort of thought, actually, that's a perfect side project from the PhD. And then I can still go ahead and publish a book based on the PhD down the track, which took me a very long time. But um but yes, yeah, so I still remember Roland. And so Roland, I said, Oh, I'm thinking of submitting this somewhere. And Roland said, Oh, I should send it through. So I sent it through and I remember getting an email back from him the next morning just saying, oh, well, it's a very good paper. It's a, uh, you know, I had a glass of wine and made for a, and read your paper made for a very enjoyable evening, which is still exactly the sort of thing Roland would, would do. But I remember just going, dude, you really need to you know, that's not an enjoyable evening at all. You need know, to get out of the house more, Roland. But I, um
1: I did that once, like about a year ago. <laughs> I, I did a Friday night where I got some beer and I read an article by you and an article by Eric Van Rijk Reit- Rythoven and um and I I tweeted about it and and you, you responded by saying is this what you do for fun? <laughs> yeah. well, that
0: sounds that sounds like that sounds like the sort of thing I'll answer. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah, so uh, so that was great. And that was one of the I think, so I've had this weird experience where actually the, the that was the first piece that was an article where I thought this is a research article and submitted it to a research journal. and it's and it came through. Just accept it. It was there was no uh, corrections or anything, and I remember going, "Wow, that's uh, this is great," which set me up terribly because then I've been disappointed because right, you, you thought I, it's all, always <laughs> going to be that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just a big rubber stamp. This whole industry, man. If I'm not, I'll be just chugging all sorts of stuff in. Um, so, but actually, it's sort of come full circle. So the the piece that I just had pub- the most recent article I've had published is then. That's been, and I've published a few things in between. That was another one that came through with, wow, this, we don't get this very often, but this is just an accept, this piece on climate and security in Australia after the after the fires. So the first piece I had published was just an accept with no corrections. And then the most recent piece published tick that box and literally nothing in between.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. What was the, um, did you feel like the, like all of this, uh activity or whatever was absolutely necessary, like we were already getting, it sounds like at least through Tim and maybe a few, few other folks, you were getting some feedback on the kinds of, and probably just socializing with some of the uh, grad students that you got to meet at Aber. Di- did you feel like, okay, these are the kinds of things I need to do now that I'm hooked into academia. I want to do this that I need to publish in order to get the uh, positions that I'm looking for or. Yeah.
0: That's absolutely. That really is absolutely what it was. And I did have the. I mean, the one. The one thing that I did bring because it, it all just sounds so arbitrary, and and there was a fair bit of fortune in my first academic job for sure. But the. Um, but yeah, when I worked out that I wanted to be an academic, I was pretty. Obsessive and single-minded about it, and was like, right, I do need to. I need to do book reviews. I need to take any opportunity to publish work and keep on ticking over with my PhD. But then was applying for jobs within <laughs> with still, you know, twelve months to go on my uh, dissertation. So that was, and I'd transitioned by this stage. So Marianne had spent some time overseas, and uh, another um, I'd taken. Cindy O'Hagan became my principal. Supervisor for my PhD, and she was she was just wonderful. But again, her background was identity politics, so I I didn't really have anyone who I could. Um, it wasn't until I remember um, Alex Bellamy, so with whom I've collaborated. He I just missed him at Aberystwyth when I was there. He'd already moved moved on um, elsewhere. But then he got an academic job at UQ, and he and I became really close, and we're writing a few things. And so we'd we I think we're trying to recreate a mini Aber and would meet at the pub and talk about IR stuff and talk a lot about the sort of research I was doing. And he had very similar ideas about, you know, this is what you need to do strategically to get you to position yourself so that you can be competitive for an academic job, which involved, in our case, writing a few things together.
1: And then were you... How how widespread were you on your market search when you went on the market? Uh, and <laughs> so did, I did, yeah, no. That's and did you have uh, like the constraints of well, you got to stay in the Australian Academy, or you and Helen could even think yeah. about the the UK or Europe or other areas? Or look, it's a good question. We did actually.
0: Um, we were one of those people in a very fortunate position because we had gone straight through from both of us had done undergrad. Honours in Helen's Cates, Masters and my PhD without a break. I mean, technically, I think you could probably say my first two years of my undergraduate degree were like a gap year, such was my commitment to the task of completing assessment. Um, but the uh, we got to the, we were both very flexible in terms of our life stage. We were still early to mid-20s by the time um, I'd finished PhD, so um, that puts you in a position where, yes, we we were both potentially open to living overseas. And the UK was really obvious because Helen had a a British passport. Um, I was really lucky in hindsight that she decided, actually, I want to go into social work because it looked like her research area was, was sort of more Australian history. And so you're like, well, if you go down that road, A, it's very difficult as I'm sure many of your listeners know, to get um, two academic jobs in the same place, but the market narrows significantly when you basically, when one of those people um, has research expertise in Australian history. <laughs> so we, we were pretty open and when I first, so the ones I can remember, the ones I remember applying for, uh, there was definitely a University of uh, Aberdeen was one in Scotland, so I missed, I didn't even get, they, I obviously didn't didn't like what they saw in my application, didn't even get shortlisted. Same with uh, Victoria University in Wellington. I applied for a gig there and, again, same, same result. Um, I was still keeping an eye on things that came up in Australia and so this job came up at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, which is one of the group of eight universities um, and the job looked like it was it was kind of made for me or it would have been if it was 12 months later so it was for someone to teach uh, a two year research and teaching post filling in for michael wesley who i think had he was a permanent person there but had gone on secondment to one of the uh, australian government departments um anyway he uh, there was a two year replacement post where you would teach Australian foreign policy, international security and introduction to international relations. And I, I I currently teach two of those three courses. So I was thinking this is right up this is right up my street. It's just two years, so I might actually be able to get shortlisted as opposed to, you know, some of those other gigs. But I was still at the point I applied, I was conservatively twelve months away from completing my PhD. Um and managed to get that position, get off of that position. So I started at UNSW when I was still six months away from completing my PhD. No book or book contract, about three or four journal articles. And that now, I sort of feel embarrassed talking about that now. I'm sure many of many of us in our generation, Brent, would just be thinking, you know, thank God, the bar yes. was so much lower when Absolutely. we managed to get through. The bar
1: was lower and there were more jobs. I mean, it was like a double a double whammy in our favor. I, I'm I'm just thinking about how I had one, you know, I, I had three articles, but like one only one of them was single authored and based on my own dissertation research. And I got a I got a tenure track job in the US you know, our one university. There's no, there's no way nowadays that that would cut it, right? Um, yeah,
0: that's right. That's yeah. absolutely right. In fact, I had, um, I remember being really struck by this. We were lucky enough, Richard Jackson, at who by then was at Aberystwyth, a Kiwi at Aberystwyth, and I managed to nab years later a, a UK ESRC grant. And as part of what we'd written, we would need for this grant, we we wrote in six-month research assistant position and we had 48 applications for this position most of whom if we wanted to limit it to people who already had PhDs and um, several (laughs) publications we could have and I remember thinking this was a six-month RA job only about six years after I'd gotten mine that looked like it was going to be um, more competitive, where the bar was much higher than it was for, for the gig that I first got. So I was really lucky. I, it w- did mean that first six months at UNSW was about as stressed as I think I've been in my life. I, I've, I had some massive mental health wobbles around that time. My first ever panic attack that I didn't know, in part because I made the absolutely idiotic decision. Of submitting my PhD and quitting smoking on the same day. I don't know why I <laughs> thought that would be the right thing to <laughs> no, do. No, it's, <laughs> it's like
1: I don't no. think even
0: even doctors who deal with would be saying that's that's stupid. Don't don't do that. So I'm waiting on these results I'm stu- of my PhD, thinking if I get massive corrections or worse, I'm, when on earth am I going to have the time to actually do them amidst trying to desperately. In the with this two year gig, trying desperately to publish other things, to look for other work, and actually um, teach the courses that I was teaching, and I was supervising honours students and things like that. So, so yeah, I had a I that was that was difficult the first six months. Helen was still in Brisbane completing her um, social work degree, so that was, a, that, was a, a that was a difficult was a difficult time, um, and then. Thankfully, managed to uh, manage to sort of cope through that, and at about um, a bit over twelve months into my time at UNSW, um, I found out about this job at the University of Birmingham um, that. Impact- Part through contacts that I knew at uh, Aberystwyth so that ended up being useful again so Paul Williams was at the University of Birmingham by then and um, got into touch with me possibly via Alex because he and Alex are obviously Alex Bellamy obviously very close and said right it's still it's not a permanent gig but it's four years um, Stuart Croft has got this money and he Stuart ended up being you know a real mentor for me as well Stuart Croft has this money and you can come across, but you need to teach European um, security. And I, of course, responded, as you would just say, <laughs> European security, that's like my research. Oh, I haven't published on it as such yet, but it's really, like, there's not a thing you can ask me about European security that I don't already know. <laughs> and thinking to myself, I hope they don't follow that up with what does <laughs> the OS what does the OSCE stand for? Because <laughs> like I was a bit shaky, to be honest. There was a bit of, uh... but, yeah, Helen and I, so, that that option came up, and we and we both talked about it, and then I applied. I went to Birmingham uh, for the interview can, on this glorious
1: I, day. Well, yeah. can, can I ask, like, what? Um, so when you when you got to fly from Australia all the way to Birmingham uh uk england like what how long is the flight and then did they give you time like for one of those interviews to like recover a little bit from jet lag or, or, or oh not? this is
0: this is worse than you expect um because my uh so it was immediately after isa montreal so I say montreal in 2004 i think it was was the um, first ISA I'd been to. I had hardly any research money, so I was staying sort of in the Latin quarter of Montreal, these long walks. It's the coldest I've ever been in my life. It was absolutely freezing cold that uh, ISA oh, was that? A, yeah,
1: that was 2004, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, it it was, it was, it was so cold. It was awful. Yeah. But they had scheduled Birmingham decided we'll schedule the interviews for the week after the ISA in Montreal and uh, so I went to my um went to my head of I won't mention this person's name, but I went to my head of school at UNSW and said, um, oh look, I've got this, I'm shortlisted for this. I'll have to work out something else with teaching or maybe push it back a week. But um I've got I've um you know, got this interview in Birmingham the week after Uh, montreal is it okay if i go straight from montreal to birmingham and uh this person said no you've got to come back you've got to teach your courses and then go So, so i had to fly from montreal back to australia which is you know it's on the worst possible side of the the eastern seaboard of North America is is shocking in terms of how long it takes and there's the only viable competitor <laughs> is the western edge of Europe so I went from one to the other flew all the way back to Sydney taught these courses on two days and then had to fly again to Birmingham which was brutal you know I I don't think I would have agreed to it agreed to it now but um but yes yeah, so we turned up I turned up in Birmingham and it was glorious weather, and they were saying they had put me up in this nice accommodation. And I walked along the canal. I thought, this is a this is just a stunning, stunning city. I then sort of, you know, presented to the department, and the department at the time at Birmingham was really strong. There were some really, really good people there. Probably not um, massively uh, high profile in IR, but lots of people in political economy. Lots of political theorists and, you know, people like Colin Hay was there and uh, Simon Caney was there. But um, I remember thinking, oh, this is a lovely town. I went to the interview, went to the presentation, and then they do this awful thing in British jobs, and I think you know where this is going to go because this has been doing the rounds on Twitter, where they go, just meet in the lobby with the other candidates and we'll take you all out to dinner. And I thought, what? manner of hell is this are we going to have some sort of cage match to decide who gets the post what's going to happen and of course i've turned up and i've looked around and i've gone uh i recognize that person's name i recognize that person's name no one knows who the hell i am so naive about the whole process that it never occurred to me that the fact that they flew me out from australia might mean that they were fairly serious about me as a candidate i just thought well i'm done this is no chance so then, when they took us out, I was just like, "Oh well, I might as well have a few drinks and make the <laughs> make the most of it." So I was on the edge of basically getting a bit uh, hammered on this, you know, with jet lag induced as well. But uh, but yes, I got the job offer on a Dubai airport on the way back to Sydney, and Helen met me at the airport, and we were going to have this long conversation about whether we were going to take it, whether we were going to move to the UK. I think we decided in the. Um, bus. We didn't have money for a taxi, <laughs> but I think we'd on the bus in the bus on the way back to uh, our place. We'd we'd made the call that we were gonna we were gonna do it. We were gonna go. Um, and it was great. It was very exciting. And then of course the day I arrived, <laughs> the day I arrived So we arrived in Birmingham. I'm selling Birmingham to hell. It's a beautiful city. I don't you know. I don't know why it's not more prominent. Uh, why do Why didn't we visit? We only went through it on the bus, which is basically everyone's experience of Birmingham. Um. <laughs> But we turn up and it is uh, this drizzly, overcast, leaden sky day and the taxi driver, we had to arrange our own accommodation and they sort of said, oh, they were they were good about it at Birmingham and said, oh, you can have this amount of money, you know, you can either stay somewhere nice for like two nights while you sort something out or if you needed to stretch further then you might have to set your bar a bit lower when it comes to accommodation. Anyway, so we had this horrible little b and I still remember being concerned about getting electrocuted when we turned on the light. I still remember the, the um, this still horrifies me to this day. They served uh, full English breakfast with a cooked tomato, but the tomato was a tinned tomato. They actually used tinned tomatoes to cook with, and I, Helen and I were like, what manner of fresh hell is this? But the the taxi driver who'd taken us had gone. Oh, you don't want to go the the way I'd gone. You don't want to go along that. Well, I'll take you to the back streets. It's quicker. And so we go through. We're going systematically through some of the dodgiest areas of Birmingham. And Helen, I could just she was she was putting on a brave face, but she was thinking something along the lines of, "What the hell have you done?" And I was thinking, you know, "What the hell have?"
1: Um. Was uh so you got so that was her first experience in Birmingham? You you hadn't gone the, the option of going and doing a scouting trip to decide was not an option, I, I take it. Uh, you made the decision in Sydney that you're gonna do it and and then and then when you get there, that's your experience, right? Yeah, that's right.
0: And you know, bearing in mind this was so the idea of turning up in Birmingham saying we've just moved from Sydney, to most people there, they thought that was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever heard because there's massive movements the other way and, and you are moving from like there's a lot about Sydney I don't I don't love we had a great time there in part because we could rent and so we and it was just the two of us. If you're trying to buy a house, it's just crazy. It's like Paris, Hong Kong, London, that level of expensive. So there's a lot about Sydney I didn't like, but what you would say is that it's a physically beautiful mm-hmm. city with amazing weather and you know, it's absolutely physically stunning. I don't know that you would say that about Birmingham. <laughs> I think that'd be a harder that would be a harder argument to sustain. You know, more canals than Venice, yes, but the Venice ones have fewer upturned empty shopping trolleys at the bottom of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm cropping that quote. That's going to be how I advertise this
0: episode. <laughs> oh,
1: fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're so low-brow. Yeah, that's fine. Well, um, but th- this, be- this became like a, 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 great time for you guys. Cause you had, uh, both, both your children there, right? Uh, maybe That's not. Right. You, you yeah. had the, the, your oldest in, in Birmingham, right. Um, but both, both children in the UK, I think. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, will, we lived in Birmingham. <laughs> we
0: had an, we had one, um, yeah, we, well, we bought a house in Birmingham. That went really badly because the financial crisis here. We ended up selling it for less than what we bought it for. But we did buy a house. So we did invest in Birmingham. And even when I moved, so about two and a half years into my time at the University of Birmingham, they um, had by this stage, they'd converted my contract. They said, actually, it's not four years anymore. It's permanent. I'd had this amazing time at Birmingham, but... There was this broad process where Stuart, um, led by Stuart Croft, had, had decided, right, I'm shifting a few people up, moving over to I'm going to Warwick. Do you want to come? And so there, there was, this was part of this period, this, this exodus of people from Birmingham to Warwick and working, with, um, working as close as I was with uh, Stuart and as close as I had been with Paul Williams Chris Browning, by this stage, who was, in my, who was in the next office, it was just um, fantastic sharing an office with him. He'd moved to Kiel by this point, so, um, so there was less of a rationale to stay at Birmingham, but I, I, we remained in Birmingham. We kept living in Birmingham and I commuted to um, Coventry. I'm not going to – they do fundamentally misrepresent the location of the University of Warwick, as as you'd know. Because it's not in Warwick. (laughs) No, it's on the outskirts of Coventry. And if you know Coventry well, you would know why they choose to represent it in different geographical terms. If you're listening to this and in – uh, coventry. I do apologize for that aspersion no, that has been cast. But
1: it's all right. One one night uh out at the pub with, with uh Chris Browning and um James Brassett, uh Juanita uh, uh came in and, and uh, had a, a pint with us and I asked her where she was from and she said I well um or or maybe I just asked like where she lived or whatever, but she said the the posh area of Coventry Coventry. <laughs> yeah that'd be earlston i think yeah. earlston. oh so there is because because my my response oh, yeah. is yeah yeah coventry has a posh area <laughs> uh, which you? of course I, <laughs> i'd had too many pints at that point and that's where i needed to, to <laughs> yeah, clam up a but little I, bit I mean, there. both both um
0: birmingham and then to a lesser extent uh so we were in the uk in the end for five years both birmingham and uh warwick were amazing in terms of you know, so both places I was, they put me in charge of the research seminars series and I still remember just thinking I could invite, you know, really the limit to the quality of people I could invite was the limit of my imagination. They were all so commuting distance, all these amazing scholars around and that was a great opportunity. I remember both at both Birmingham and at Warwick I was in the office next to Chris Browning and the joy that I didn't sort of experience Recognised sufficiently at the time, the joy of being able to walk into um, his office, knock on the door, and sort of say, "Have you read this thing?" And he'd be invariably would have or have been about to read it, and we'd end up having these conversations that I I remember feeling guilty about at the time, thinking, "God, that's an hour and a half. We I really should have been sitting down writing and reading." But it was it, now. I think that's such an amazing experience to have someone who works so closely with the same sort of debates and research um, that you do. And so that that was all incredible. The travel was amazing. Um, so we did lots of travelling in Europe, Helen and I, and then when Liam, our eldest, came along, we uh, did plenty of travelling with him. And it was only really when I think we started to sort of think, I need to get back to Australia at about the point. our second, Frank, came along and we were, Staring down the barrel, a bit of God. We've got no family support here to help us look after the kids. It'd be nice to have a bit of that, but to be honest, I was also just fairly homesick. I was ringing my, you know, I'd be in touch. My brother would Skype me on a drizzly Friday morning, and he'd be Friday afternoon, and he'd be, he'd have finished and be sitting on his balcony with a singlet and a beer, watching rugby, <laughs> and I'd just be like, "Damn you to damn you to hell!" I, I did really. <laughs> I did really miss it. So I think it was as much that as anything else that sort of meant we got to the point where he started to think actually it'd be good to move back to...
1: It's a bit of a juxtaposition though, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, I can just tell just chatting with you and and I know as well just in the lore and in my own experiences, like limited experiences even then in the UK, in the British Academy that like personally for you being away from family was really tough. But in terms of like being in a place at a time when IR was really, and maybe I'm getting nostalgic or whatever for that period of time, but international relations was really at a really fascinating point for those, you know, the, the, the period of time from 2000 to 2000, you know, seven, eight, nine, when, when, you know, bookending went the different periods of time that you had experienced there. And one of the things I was wondering was, um, did you feel like you, because of the institutions of like BISA and just how the British Academy is, and and there's a flip side to it as well because it can be a bit clubby and also blokey sort of in terms of being kind of dude-centric. On the one hand, on the other hand, did was it a was it a little bit easier to because the BISA is kind of such a or at least back then it was such a. Um, um, social kind of collegial environment that you felt like it was a, an easy transition into the back back into the British Academy when you were in Birmingham and um and Warwick, or was it one of those things that you already knew a lot of people there anyway from your time at Aber that it was even even easier? Yeah, I think I th- I, kn- I knew a
0: few people from Aber, but then after that, I um yeah, I'd, it did really help being. You know, yes, I was on the visa executive, but then things like um, organising the seminar series and um, I got to know quite a few more people and then started to get invited to workshops and things like that. And you really had, at the time, I really, most of the people whose work I was really reading and drawing on were based in the UK um, or at, or um, Europe and so you know you really felt like you were in the nerve center and that was an amazing professionally it was just an incredible experience for me especially relatively early on in my career so this was only a couple of, I joined at Bruce with uh, oh sorry I joined Birmingham only 12 months after I'd finished my my PhD so it was I was still an early career researcher and it was just yeah it was it was amazing but the the transition back was um was fine and i I'd, I think I, I really one thing I do miss, and this is this might surprise people. I miss the British people more than I, I find easier as a general rule to interact with the British than I do with Australians. I think the quality of the sense of humour is a such a big such a big thing, and I always, always had a thing with even with work. I, I would think you know, take your you should take your work really seriously but never take yourself too seriously and I loved that about the UK system where, you know, you would be more likely to um, get people just relentlessly taking the piss out of you about something than you would someone go, wow, I read your work, it's really good, you know, and I'm still to this day far more comfortable with, with someone just going, hey, you know what I loved about your paper, Garamond, I mean, how good is that font? It's so, and I agree. I mean, it is the it is the king of all fonts, but that the sort of thing that you get all the time in the, in the UK. There's a little bit of that in Australia, but um, but yeah, I love that uh, that sense of humour. Was then the people obviously that I miss, and you miss them all because you can't. You know, as you know, you can't get there uh, just now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, did um, so was there. Uh, were had you been actively looking uh, to go back out on the market before you ended up going on the market to get the job back at UQ or um or was it one of those things that you just made a, a semi-conscious decision to just go back on the market right around that time to try to get back to Australia and yes yeah. yeah no that was the case it was
0: the it was the latter before that the only positions that I'd paid any attention to cuz my wife and I did a lot of, we did a lot of walking when we were in the UK and there were times where I'd be like, "Oh, that's a job at Lancaster. That's quite close to the Lake District. That would be that'd be pretty cool. Other than that, we were, we weren't, I wasn't really looking. Um, but then we did just get to the point of saying, right, actually the move back to Australia makes sense. So I applied for a few. It was, you know, actually when I think about it now and how few jobs there have been in international relations in Australia in the last, Months it was amazing that once I decided, I think there was this three month period where about four or five different places advertised, and UQ was last (laughs) to actually advertise, so it made it um, it was challenging to try to sort of time it and work with other institutions to basically say, Look, I like you, but if UQ um comes, because obviously my family, not just that it was a good department, um. But my family was all in Brisbane. Helen's family all in Brisbane. Um, there'd been enough time that had passed, at least in my view, between when I'd finished my PhD and when I was, was returning. That it felt, you know, it's not like I'm just the person who never left. <laughs> so, so, but it was the case that when we decided we would move back to Australia, I applied for a few gigs in Australia at the at that time, and um, yes, UQ was UQ was one of them.
1: The um And this period of time, so this was sort of at the end of 2009 into early 2010, so kind of in the shadow of the global financial crisis, right? But if I remember correctly, this is right around the time that it's almost like Australia was able to get, it was almost like it had a super magnet to be able to draw counter cyclically a lot of people to the Australian Academy from from the UK Academy, from the United States Academy. When it was austerity craze in those two um, in those two contexts, and it felt like Australia was hiring a little bit more uh, at the time. Is that right? Or That's I remember Wes Whitmire. Yeah. Uh, I think Laura Shepard might have been um, might have been transfer. Or, you know, leaving from the UK into the Australian Academy. I can't remember when Tim Dunn left, but I, I just remember. L- every once in a while doing a Google search of all these scholars in the British Academy who I'd been following for a while. And then they're no longer in the British Academy they're in the, in the Australian Academy. And I might be conflating, you know, a period of four or five years into one or two years, but that's what it felt like to me.
0: No. Well, I think that's absolutely, that's absolutely accurate. I mean, it had the massive advantage and, of course, the, another person who came was my the person who's my neighbour on the other side in the corridor, um, Chris Roy-Smith. So he came across from European Research Institute, the European University at the at about the same time. But, yeah, Tim, so we had, you know, just selfishly from from our point of view, we've had since. I, so I thought UQ was a strong department when I returned and it was, but, um, since we've come back we've appointed you know some really not just Tim and Christopher Smith but um, Andrew Phillips um, and then other people who've gotten who've moved to transition to permanent gigs like Seb camp and then most recently Shahar Hamieri and Cindy O'Hagan's come back and um, Sarah Percy so we've we've just gone from being quite a big big um, a, a good solid uh, IR politics and IR department. At the point I was applying to come back to now being at the point where it's not a massive. I've I've been told by a couple of different people, wow, this you know this you know this is one of the best places for IR in the in the world, which is probably not far off the, the truth in lots of ways. I mean, the big downside <laughs> of what you're talking about was that we at the point Helen and I went to the. UK we were getting about it was about three dollars to the pound so we transferring our savings across got absolutely smashed when we first arrived in the UK found everything really expensive stayed in horrible accommodation because we basically said this is how much we're willing to pay and that was the wrong decision (laughs) but then when we came back we had the opposite because of course the UK was hit so hard by the financial crisis that's why we ended up selling our house for less than what we bought it for and got smashed returning what Little savings we did manage to bring back to Australia, so we were a bit unlucky in terms of the um, financial period. But um, but it's been great for the great for the department and my work experience at UQ.
1: So it, it, you always make it sound like I'm the only one that ever uh, was either taken or read uh, your 2010 IPS article, unless we forget. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but I want to back up just briefly to. Um, to one you mentioned, uh, September 11th being kind of a big moment, uh, you know, internationally, I think it was a, a big moment. And then, was I mean, the way that it's always told to us in the lore is that Bali was like closest to a 911 that Australia had experienced just because there were so many Australian tur- tourists that were targeted in the Bali bombing, um, which. Uh, maybe that's true. I, I'm not sure you'd you, you, you maybe be able to comment on that. And that was in 2002, I think. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, yeah. But sort of like how all this combines is, did, did you kind of feel like um, sort of a little bit like we, like my generation felt with vis-a-vis the Bush administration, but in your case, vis-a-vis Howard's, um, mm. because he was a prime minister for a long period of time. So he was a prime minister before Um, The war on terror and then like all the way through and then obviously was very enthusiastic about getting, um, uh, you know, uh, Australia joining the quote unquote coalition of the welling. Um, So did did you feel like it was that definitive? I mean, you had a lot of research interests outside of terrorism or security studies, uh, especially in environment and ecological stuff. Um, but nevertheless, that, I mean, that, that article, I remember when I had read it, that was, I think the, you know, the second or third thing of yours that I'd, that I'd read, but that was the one, (laughs) and I think, you know, the story where, I was on a flight and I had brought my like copy of IPS with me and I read it and I wrote all kinds of notes. And I was like, holy shit, I got, I got to email this guy's, this is such a great article. And then I left it in the seat back pocket and they wouldn't let me get back onto the plane to get my notes and so, you actually tried know. to get back on the plane for that i've left like water bottles because so of terrorism be because water. of counterterrorism <laughs> policies they wouldn't let me go back down <laughs> that's the irony of it right oh, so um so i'm interested in, in the story behind that and or if like the impact of especially howard's kind of the, the you know quasi neoconservative rhetoric was something that you viscerally that that shaped some of your research interests and uh, that that are expressed in that article and some of your other work. Yeah, look, I um,
0: I have always been, I think, possibly influenced by some of the way I saw, you know. So some of the early work that really affected me was was people like Ken Booth writing security as emancipation. That seemed to, you know, it didn't seem to me problematic at all to basically run with a normative argument in um in research terms and that was never a thing that I'd encountered in the UK and time in Ambrose or in in Australia there was a sense now you need to develop a testable hypothesis that they, they picked their side with the third great debate and were were running with it really so since then i i've I've never I've always i've I think I've always published or or been really motivated to write about software I think Actually, this is a really important issue and the way in which current approaches, policy settings are lining up is really problematic. So with the Howard government, it was everything from what, you know, from the examples you mentioned, from its climate policy, that was my first target to uh, the war on terror and the way in which counterterrorism was prosecuted to its approach to asylum seekers all have provided grist to the mill for me in terms of um, academic publications, and then I've tried to sort of make sure I'm still intervening in broader public debate with op-eds and um, things like that. But the example of the Lest We Forget" um, paper was initially, I think, pitched at Warwick. There was a there was a suggestion that we should do a sort of memory politics symposium um, that Stuart Croft had pitched, and this seemed really quite obvious to me. But when I came back to Australia, one of the things that I really noticed was that all of a sudden, um, you know, the meaning attached to Australian nationalism and symbols had sort of shifted over time and it really affected me. So I, I was sort of thinking, you know, when I left the U- Australia for the UK, you'd see a symbol like the Southern Cross, which features on the Australian flag, the um, constellation and wouldn't necessarily think anything of it, whereas now you, you'd see it, you'd come back and it'd be a plaster on the back of a ute or just on the back of a, a human being who was wearing a singlet and you'd think that's probably you know now it, it had become laden with racism and this, this sort of really narrow vision of national identity and I became really I was sort of really struck by it, having been away for a few years, just how much how it had been able to shift what it meant to be Australian and so that lest we forget um, paper was as much about, you know, let's really examine how it is that elements of our um, history are sort of continuing continuing to shift or the symbols continue to shift or the meaning that's attached to them, um, not just changes, which is interesting analytically, but then how it comes into the service of a particular politics and set of practices. That's what I was really fascinated by with... um, you know with ANZAC in particular this this sort of dominant dominant myth but like I'm sure many people my first interaction with Brent as I recall was just this email out of the blue from someone saying I oh, really like this really like this paper we should get together for a chat at some stage and at the time I it was pretty unusual for that to for that to happen and I, it sort of scandalized me in the profession that we don't do that far more often so actually i i have to say i was completely converted with this and there's been and i would it would be very rare that a week would go by where i haven't emailed some poor person out of the blue who i've never met just going hey that piece is really good because no one ever likes it you know no one's ever no one's ever offended when they get an email saying, hey, I read this piece and it's really
1: interesting. You know? Oh, okay. I didn't know where you were going with that because <laughs> you're, you're one of many guests I've had where they've had that experience uh, uh, and mentioned it. And now I'm wondering if I'm kind of viewed as a little bit of a, a sort of a, a a crazy person, in in the sense that, like, I just start emailing people, and people aren't used to, aren't used. Well, to. you've influenced me, so let's go with uh, <laughs> what's an IR
0: term we could go. With? Norm entrepreneur. There you go. You're a, That's what you are. So I know you don't buy into that uh, traditional vision of constructivism, but uh, that yeah, that'd be yeah. No, I really, I really was uh, was thinking we should do this more, and we're not, we're not generally, we're not kind enough. To each other in terms of reaching out or saying, you know, you're really good. And I think, to be honest, there's been there's been a lot of us who built have built careers that seem to have been there have been points where actually you've probably gotten a nod for a workshop or a um, some type of event to be included in because you people meet you and think, oh yeah, you seem to be a decent a decent Mm. person. I've, I've gone for comic relief. That's my, that's my (laughs) angle. I'm sort of hoping that no one works out that actually at the end of the day, you can't really build an academic career just on
1: (laughs) jokes about how shit house Birmingham is. (laughs) That's a contribution. That's a contribution. (laughs) So how do you, how do you uh, approach writing and has it changed over the years? I'm really not that systematic
0: when it comes to writing. With some individual projects, I was. So, the Ecological Security book um, that I actually developed, I had this great experience of having a uh, sabbatical in 2015, where I just said, write this, this study leave. I'm really going to read as much as I can because it's a project that involved familiarizing myself with literature I hadn't come across before. So, and then the most recent one, the most recent study leave I basically went right now is the one where I actually write sit down and and write the thing based on all the stuff I'd done in between so I had a table and I had this is the number of words I want to get done each day and I'd write them write down you know how I was going with my targets and I was usually pretty good, but actually that's fairly rare that was something about that project where I was just thinking all right now that so this is a precious window to actually spend some time completing the book. Cause I'm not a person who it doesn't come particularly naturally to me to work on multiple different things at the same time I'm a bit of a I need to have one project that I'm working on and then I can move on to the next one so with a book obviously that's a that's a big deal because it can potentially be a massive suck of time but um But, yeah, writing tends to be – I will – I've noticed actually the change. One thing that has really changed is COVID and the absence of um, conferences and workshops that would otherwise give you both – force you to develop ideas around papers um, or or projects but then also give you these deadlines to actually complete stuff by or at least have – cogent ideas in that space and that's been something that i have realized i've been like wow without them i'm sort of left to my own devices a bit more which is good and bad but um so that's been that's been a bit of a change but yeah when it comes to writing i don't think i'm as systematic as i could be and i do find there's a bit of hubris in describing it in these in these terms but i do uh, i'll sit at the computer and i will have i i do um I do write, but if I'm sitting at the computer for about four hours and I've finished written a thousand words, chances are I've written those a thousand words in bursts that have taken no more than about twenty to twenty five minutes, and the rest of the time I've been sitting there staring at the screen or getting distracted by email or Twitter or something like that. Like uh, I do tend to go in bursts, and I'll get this this uh, a burst of energy rather than sit down and go write for the next three hours. I'm I'm writing that it just doesn't tend to work for me
1: when you had um like daily word goals with the the ecological project um were you able to do it did, did you have enough like uh, sort of um i guess material for lack of a better term to be able to say well I, I i know i got a lot out there i have this like blob of stuff that's out there or in my in my brain and i just got to sit down and discipline myself to churn it out or is it one of those things where um you you had to sit down and sort of inspire yourself or will yourself some days and then other days it just sort of flowed yeah there were, i mean there were
0: definitely there were so there were massive ranges with how much i'd write in a day and i did have this thing i don't know how transferable this phrase is but i i um I did have a bit of white line fever so we that's in an, in Australia might use that with you know the finish line when the finish line for a particular chapter for example looks close then I had this momentum to actually really keep going and um and get things done but by and large I did hit the targets I kept in my mind I think um, you yeah, know the wonderful book and then movie touching the void um you know with with Joe Simpson the way he talks about Getting having these targets where in 20 minutes he'd get to that next bit of the glacier to try to get down after having this horrendous accident to try to get out back to civilization. I was sort of there were at times where I was like that was I was I got a bit obsessive about making trying to trying to at least hit you know seven or eight hundred words even if I, I wasn't feeling it to the same degree on a particular day. And then on
1: no other days would be you know if I got going to be a couple of thousand, but. How do you decompress? So you're a musician, so that helps. You go camping, I know. I've seen pictures of you surfing, right? So you well, surf- sort of.
0: Not not on a not on a uh, not standing up on a board. No, so I'm not <laughs> not an actual surfer. I do like going in the surf, but it's usually just body surfing, so swimming along with the waves. Um Yeah, I I try to I've been pretty successful um at Trying to, so one of the things at Aberystwyth that I didn't take away from that was the the sense that you would work that it was normal to work on the weekends or the after you know in the evenings and I've really tried to stop myself from doing that so that probably helps in terms of being able to relax and and do you Exercise succeed at that just, yeah.
1: do, do you succeed at being able to stop yourself at like whatever for.
0: Oh, you know. emails are usually the thing that are the most problematic mm-hmm. in that sense because you just know that you can see them in your inbox. You know that oh, if I just spend five minutes responding to this now, oh, it's one thing I don't have to do tomorrow, and then that ends up. So emails are often the the ones that I find hardest to stop myself from doing and i'm sure someone might say well if you were if you were even more productive than you are in research terms or if you had a really big um administrative job like yours you know departmental chair or something like that then that maybe wouldn't be a luxury you could sustain if you actually wanted to sustain your your research but um so far so good i i exercise quite a bit so i do um i do run and uh yeah lucky enough to live close enough to ride to work so i do a bit of cycling go to the gym um that's all that stuff is as much for mental health as physical health and uh craft beer as you know because of course we're uh we follow each other on untapped on the uh where i get to check in we have very different views i note of the i'm <laughs> i actually treat it with the integrity it deserves Of basically me going right i want to use This resource, so basically you can check in with individual beers and then you rate them and so I'm like, oh, that's got a good, you know, I really like this one, this is particularly good. Whereas you're more likely with Brent to get, go the insert name of football team or here I am grilling and chilling with Chase Pups and just a picture of his dog with a beer of blurry background. I'm like, tell me about the beer, idiot. What's the beer like? (laughs) So I (laughs) like
1: No, your, it's basically uh, a live blog of of my <laughs> suburbanite warrior existence. Oh,
0: it's <laughs> wonderful! It's wonderful, but and of course, you know, uh, we've gotten into trouble. Our love of craft beer has taken us to uh, away from, uh, in particular, your editorial colleague and uh, Professor Subodh in Prague. We're still we're still dealing with the remnants of that. Cluster cuss of you having uh, decided actually hang out with me in a craft beer bar, me and Chris in a craft beer bar in Prague rather than join (laughs) the.
1: And and Chris Aegis and Jennifer Mitson and Katarina Kinval. And I mean, there was a group of us. And fortunately, there was a group of us because with everybody's testimony, we can reconstruct what actually happened that night since you and Chris and I forgot to have dinner.
0: Well, yeah, although it is always <laughs> – that's right. Well, it is always uh, – you and I seem to cop it on Twitter, Professor Sabota, so you can spread a bit of that uh, vitriol in other directions. I mean, she does, to be fair. There's a lot of – but on that particular issue, she can spread some of that vitriol. There's no right a shortage
1: of vitriol.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. So, yeah, that, that's a big – I do love um, – walking and camping with the with the family that's that's always really really nice but exercise craft beer i used to be at the point where it was a nice balance between craft beer and exercise you know a bit of the yin and the yang but now i feel like my 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 body's trying to renegotiate the terms of that contract and i'm exercising more and harder and uh, it doesn't seem to have the desired effect on uh waistline when it comes to the craft beer is just dominant and winning but uh, well you went
1: hiking in the dolomites is this right with with browning right uh, years ago a couple years ago or a few years ago
0: yeah that's right yeah yeah no and he uh, said there was a yin
1: and the yang looks... there where you guys would go hiking and then it was like you'd, you'd have dinner where it was just wonderful french wine or something and like a bunch of cheese and like awesome food and and everything but that's right oh that the, the uh, the european system is just magnificent
0: because it really is the best of both worlds you really you're in this stunning physical location and then at the end of the day so it's italian food and the beer on tap and you know it was just fantastic but i I do remember one morning us both looking at each other going all right this is we're about to climb a mountain now and we're both really genuinely hungover we can't we, We've got a we've got to tie a tie knot in this. We've got, we've got to rain it right down. So this is uh, that was. <laughs> it was only one day, thankfully. But um, but yes, it did it did get away from us at one stage where the owner came out giving us free grappa, and we were like,
1: yeah, why not? Thank you, Professor McDonald, for joining me on the Hayseed Scholar podcast.
0: Oh man, it's been an absolute pleasure. I told uh, I told anyone who'd listen when I got the email saying. Would you like to do this podcast? I was just like, I made it, man. This is it now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the other side. All those, you know, false starts.
1: All right. So that was my conversation with Professor Matt McDonald of the University of Queensland. You can tell that we had a really good time catching up, chatting. Uh, After we were done recording, I got to meet his wonderful wife, Helen. And that was fun, uh, just getting to say hi to her and then uh, to know that Matt was getting ready to enjoy the rest of his Saturday while uh, I was trying to wind down on a Friday evening. Um, But I so appreciate and value his friendship and just chatting with him was a nice pick-me-up and a good way to kind of start the weekend for, for me here in Utah. One of the other things that... The conversation really drove home was just how good things are going in Australia when it comes to COVID and their very, very successful mitigation of COVID, especially in contrast to the United States. Uh, Cases have never been higher. Um, Deaths uh, are now approaching record deaths every day. And so it's going to be a a dark and long winter here in the States and a very sort of scary and anxious time. Um, And yet, on the other hand, It does look like we're dealing with um, the possibility of being on the cusp of vaccine distribution here within the next two to three months. So we're just battening down the hatches, trying to get through the next few months and hopefully getting to the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. So in the meantime, uh, I'm hoping over the next month or so to have a couple more interviews and also wrapping up the semester and the sort of anxiety of uh, 2020 and putting that in the rearview mirror as well. So I hope you're all doing well, staying safe, staying healthy as much as you can, not being too stressed out. And I will talk to you all again. So until then, take care and cheers.